Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doralstown Presbyterian Church. As our podcast audience continues to grow, I want to thank our loyal listeners and welcome those who may have just recently found us. We know that life can quickly become busy, so this podcast offers an on-the-go opportunity to hear a Sunday sermon along with the scripture lesson read by that day's lay leader or preacher. We also encourage you to visit our website at dtownpc.org to learn more about our church and all of our diverse ministries. Thank you for tuning in. Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from the book of Nahum, reading from the first chapter. You can find it on page 869. Those of you who are in the sanctuary, those of you joining us online, the words will appear to you on the screen. We are reading from that first chapter as we hear verses 12 through 15. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break off his yoke from you and snap the bonds that bind you. The Lord has commanded concerning you, your name shall be perpetuated no longer. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the cast image. I will make your grave, for you are worthless. Look on the mountains, the feet of one who proclaims, who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the wicked invade you. They are utterly cut off. Let us pray. We give thanks, O God, for your living word to us, and pray that in this moment yet again, we will be led by your Spirit to hear what you would have us know and respond with deeds that bring you glory, and honor. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I continue this 13-week effort of closing the source gap in my preaching history, we come today to the Old Testament book of Nahum. That prophet shares a distinction, a rather embarrassing one, with another prophet named Obadiah, as he is one of only two authors of a part of Scripture whose words are not cited once in the three-year cycle of text in the Common Lectionary. Nahum, in our hymnal, is not the source for any of the compositions that you find there either. Perhaps the closest association is that Christmas carol, While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks by Night. It was composed in 1700 by a man named Nahum Tate. <laughs> but otherwise, we never have a hymn based upon his words. Even Obadiah has one. I went looking, too, to see if there were any choral compositions based upon this book, and I came up empty. Never once did I see something that was based on any of his 47 verses, which says that of all the 66 books of the Bible, 
Nahum by far is the most obscure and overlooked one found among that group. Now, while that helps me feel a little better about why I have skipped over him in my preaching history, I remain convinced that it too is part of God's Word. And thus, we turn to hear what that prophet from the past might be saying to us. In addition to his obscurity, Nahum's book falls in another small category of scriptural genre, namely known as the oracles against the nations. The vast majority of the prophets, when they are speaking, are speaking to the people of God, explaining why it is that hardship has come upon them or the hardship that awaits and it being due to their faithlessness. There's only one moment in the words that we read this day that have a hint of that, where God says, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For the rest of those words, and really the book as a whole, all of the harsh words are addressed to the people of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. The Assyrians overran the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 BC, and the ten tribes that made up that kingdom were dispersed, never to be heard from again. We know that the Assyrians held sway for nearly a century until finally the Babylonians overpower them. Our passage does not include any words of comfort for the Ninevites, but instead a frequent message of how their kingdom will come to an end. It's just prior to our text, we, we hear Nahum speak for himself, speaking of God as a kind of divine warrior, and says, his wrath is poured out like a fire, and by him the rocks are broken in pieces. Following that introduction, the prophet then quotes directly from God, and the subject of the words alternates, as sometimes God is speaking directly to Judah, to the remnant of the chosen people, and sometimes to the Ninevites. As he goes on and says to the oppressors, or says to Judah first, I will break off his yoke from you and snap the bonds that bind you, but to the occupying nation... The Lord says, your name shall be perpetuated no longer. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and cast image. I will make your grave, for you are worthless. Harsh words. It's in the very next verse that God speaks again to the people of Judah. As he says, look. On the mountains, the feet of one who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. Thus, this message brought by Nahum, a man whose name literally means comfort, is a message of hope. Telling the people of God of a time when those who are oppressing them will be done away with, we don't know when God spoke those words. We know that Assyria was driven out in 612 B.C. And so it, it seems likely that the people who first heard those words had years 
or even decades of waiting until that promise was fulfilled. Our New Testament reading shares many of those same characteristics. Like the word delivered by Nahum, so is this revelation of John that had come to him from Jesus, one that contains both harsh and comforting words, words of violence and of a promised peace. As John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. As is true throughout the book of Revelation, so is John here, using coded language, but he's clearly talking about Jesus. And then he moves ahead and speaks of the moment when the second coming of Christ will come. And he uses, again, very warlike language. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, John continued. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name inscribed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The revelation of John was recorded a couple of decades after Jesus had returned to heaven. And so the message for those who first heard it was one of waiting, waiting for the time when an oppression of a foreign power, in their case Rome, would finally come to an end too. And yet... That moment, that promised fulfillment, didn't come right away. And we wait, too. For as far as we can tell, Jesus has not yet returned. Which means that like all the Christians who have preceded us, so do we hear those words and know that we are still waiting for the moment when Jesus returns. We shared that with all of those who have preceded us as disciples of Jesus. And yet, the reality is that for each of us too, there are these other times when we have to wait that have nothing to do with the end times. For we can wait for the test results or the phone call offering us the job. We can wait to see if the treatment is successful or if, our, in, in fact, our prayers have been answered. We can wait to know what, in fact, our children's lives will look like, or if we will find reconciliation with that one with whom we are currently estranged. We have to wait to know what the jury decides, or even if we will get an answer to our letter, perhaps for you on this day. There's some particular way in which you find yourself waiting to. And Scripture speaks to those kinds of moments. And it was in one of his books that one of my favorite authors, John Ortberg, speaks with a unique image of how it is that we best wait. For in his book called, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Have to Get Out of the Boat. 
Ortberg asks this question. What does it look like to wait with patient trust? And then he offers this analogy from Henry Nouwen, the Dutch priest and author from the 20th century. He says, Nouwen gave us a picture of patient trust not long before he died in 1996, writing about some trapeze artists who became good friends of his. He explained that there's a very special relationship between the flyer and the catcher. Ortberg, as an aside, says, this does not surprise me. If I were the flyer, I would want to be a very good friend of the catcher. I would want to work very hard to make sure there are no lingering resentments on his part. I would want the catcher to like me a lot. As the flyer is swinging high above the crowd, he continues, the moment comes when he lets go of the trapeze when he arcs out into the air. These friends of Nowen, Traspe's artists explained that for that moment, which must feel like an eternity, the flyer is suspended in nothingness. It is too late to reach back for the trapeze. There is no going back now. However, it is too soon to be grasped by the one who will catch him. He cannot accelerate the catch in his moment, his job is to be as still and motionless as he can. The flyer must never try to catch the catcher, the trapeze artist said to Nowen. He must wait in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him, but he must wait. His job is not to flail about in anxiety. In fact, if he does, it could kill him. His job is to be still, to wait. And to wait is the hardest work of all. Both of the biblical passages before us today speak of the reality of times when people of faith have always had to wait. And it is rarely an easy experience when we are in the midst of them. And yet one of the things about this account by the most obscure prophet in the Old Testament is that after speaking of what awaited them, he also brought this word from God. For God had said to him, look, on the mountains, the feet of one who proclaims good tidings, who, who proclaims peace, and they went on to say, celebrate your festivals, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the wicked invade you, they are utterly cut off. In other words, even as they waited the end of Assyrian oppression, they were to remain people of faith. They were to carry out the everyday deeds of people of the covenant, knowing full well that they could not speed up the day of Assyria's demise any more than the people who heard John's revelation could speed up the day of Jesus's return. And yet to them, 
and to us, God tells us how we best wait. For no matter what is happening in your life today, no matter what it is, the peace that you long to bring to an end or to discover what comes next, God has revealed how it is that we best wait. For we wait by gathering for worship and by praying. We wait by continuing to study his word and respond with acts of compassion. We wait as we sing God's praise, as we claim our talents for the furthers of God's will, as we offer acts of generosity and forgiveness. In other words, we wait by living out the things that we do as people of faith throughout our journeys. Will that cause this thing for which we are worried this day to become clear sooner? Will it cause the period of waiting to end right away? I think probably not. And yet, what God has revealed to us is how it is that we can continue to wait for this answer, for this end, for this turn that we are seeking in all moments of life, including as we continue to wait for that day when his son returns. Let us pray. We give thanks, O oh God, for the ways that your word continues to speak to us and for the tools that we have at our disposal even now as we wait. Help us to claim and act upon them again, trusting that you continue to journey with us and that your love is never broken. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. Once again, I invite you to check out dtownpc.org for information about our worship and programming for all ages.